So before I left on vacation, we embarked on what I truly believe is going to be a life-changing adventure through the book of Romans. And I say life-changing because, you know, our Bible is no ordinary book. This book that we have is, is no ordinary writing, but it's God's word to humanity. It's his, his own revelation about himself and about our relationship with him. And that means that every time, every single time that we consider God's word or we study the Bible, we are connecting with and we are worshiping God. So as we study through this book of, of Romans, we're not just learning, we're worshiping. And we're giving God honor. We're not just ingesting information. Because, you know, like I always tell the, the Sunday school class and uh, Wednesday night Bible study, we can't approach God's word and particularly this great epistle to the Romans in just kind of an academic manner. We have to really seek the illumination of the Spirit. We have to genuinely ask and not just ask, but expect. Expect that God will make himself understood through the text by the powers of the Holy Spirit. And we need to, all of us, to pray in the words of the psalmist, open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wonderful things in your law. But you know, it's not going to happen by osmosis. It won't happen by slipping the Bible under your pillow at night. You have to actually get this book into your hands so you can get God's word into your head. So hopefully it'll make its way into your heart. And there's a writer who, who put it this way. as a, a poem that he wrote that said, I find my Lord in the Bible wherever I chance to look. He is the theme of this Bible. He's the center and the heart of the book. He's the Rose of Sharon. He's the Lily Fair. Whenever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He at the book's beginning gave to the earth its form. He's the ark of shelter bearing the brunt of the storm. He's the burning bush in the desert and the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in this Bible, I see the Son of God. He is the ram on Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window and the bronze serpent lifted high. He's the smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook. The face of my Lord I discover wherever I happen to look. He's the seed of the woman, the Savior, virgin born. He is the Son of David, whom men rejected and scorned. His garments of grace and beauty the stately Aaron deck, for he was a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's the Lord of eternal glory whom John the Apostle saw, the light of the golden city, the lamb without spot or flaw, the bridegroom coming at midnight for whom the virgins look. Yes, whenever I open my Bible, I find the Lord in this book. And I hope that's true for all of you. And that is why this extended look at the book of Romans fits in perfectly with kind of our overarching theme for the year, which if you remember, has been to see Jesus Christ in every book of the scriptures. And in fact, here in Romans, Paul quotes the Old Testament 61 times, 61 times in just this one letter. And that's because, brothers and sisters, there is absolutely nothing new in the New Testament. Everything, everything that Paul wrote and taught is nothing but what the Hebrew scriptures already predicted would happen. And just those things that pointed directly to Jesus as the Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. Because you see, in Romans, Paul quotes, he quotes Moses, he quotes Habakkuk, he quotes Isaiah, he quotes David, he quotes 
the Psalms and, and on and on his, his thoughts constantly intersect with God's revelation in the Torah and through the Old Testament prophets as Paul composes this incredible letter to the congregation of the church in Rome. A letter that, as we talked about the last time that we were together, has influenced and inspired some of the most important men of the Reformation and some of the mightiest revivals of the church. And even now, 2,000 years later after Paul wrote this book of Romans, his book is still accepted as both a masterpiece of sound doctrine and of human literature. And you know, it's a letter that Paul was uniquely qualified to write. And under the the direction of the Holy Spirit, he composed this, this amazing work because in his individual life converged three of the greatest cultures of his time, the Greek, Roman, and the Hebrew. Now, we know Paul's Hebrew, right? Because in his writings, he even tells us he's a, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he writes. And he's proud of his heritage, and, and rightly so, but he was also born and raised in the city of Tarsus. It's a great university town of center of Greek culture. And on top of all of those things, if those two weren't good enough, he was a freeborn citizen of the Empire of Rome. So you could almost say, in that regard, he's kind of a, a triple threat, right? He's got all the bases covered. He's got religion. He's got education. He's got culture. But you know, in spite of everything, Paul tells us he would chuck it all just to know Jesus. In fact, he wrote uh, elsewhere in Philippians, he said, I once thought these things were valuable, meaning all those great benefits and privileges that he's had. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. And he's saying that God is not impressed with, with breeding or, or ancestry or with position or with accomplishment. Because in the Apostle Paul, here's a man whose life is genuinely worthy of consideration from worldly standards. A man whose life is still affecting us these 2,000 years later, but he writes to tell us that no matter who we are or where we're from, we are all on equal footing before the holiness of God. And if you, if you kind of remember from last time, I know it was, was two weeks back, but in Romans chapter 1, Paul really took a kind of a long time building up his case with regard to the sinfulness of humanity and the immorality of of uh, deviant sexual practices, and he was really just getting on a roll. And then comes the chapter break. But that's where our reading picks up today, basically mid-thought, if you would, right in his, his, uh, his writing. So we're going to look at Romans, picking up at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear the words of the true and living God. Paul writes, You may think you can condemn such people, meaning all of those ones that we talked about the first time, but you're just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourselves for you who judge others do the very same thing. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. But since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same thing? Don't you know how wonderfully kind tolerant, and patient God is with you. Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sins? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sins, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and the honor and the immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, those who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be a terrible calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Now, sometime or, or other in your life, you probably noticed the traditional visual symbol for the ideal of justice is a blindfolded woman holding up scales and a sword, right? There's a, a statue of it right outside the courthouse in Tampa, if you happen to drive by there. You know, the, the scales are for weighing right and wrong. The sword is for punishing the guilty, and the blindfold is to show that, that Lady Justice is impartial. And, and this idea that justice is blind simply means that True justice doesn't take into account anyone's appearance or anyone's position in life or, or how much money someone has or, or doesn't have or anything really other than the absolute truth of whatever's being decided. And it reminds me of a, a story I read about a, a traffic cop who pulled a motorist over and asked to see his driver's license. So the man hands it to the officer, and after the officer looked at it, he handed it back to the driver, and he said, this license says you have to wear glasses when you're driving. Wear your glasses. The man in the vehicle replied, I know, officer, you see, but I have contacts. The officer said back to him, I, I don't care who you know. You can contact anyone you want, but you're still getting a ticket from me today. Right, but there are many of us who think that if we have the right contacts in the right places, we can jump to the head of the line, right? Or we can get a pass, or we can get out of whatever judgment that we may deserve. And in the human realm, that happens a lot of times, but it doesn't work with God. In fact, in speaking to his people Israel, God said to them, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Pretty tough love, right? And if you remember from two weeks ago, as I mentioned, Paul began this letter to the church in Rome really kind of giving us all the bad news first. The news that all of humanity, regardless of, of ethnic race or place of birth, stands guilty before the holiness of God and in need of salvation and of real spiritual and physical healing. Kind of like the, the, the man who made an appointment to see his doctor and when he got into the office, he said, Doctor, everywhere I touch, it seems to hurt me lately. If I, if I touch my knees, I hurt. If I touch my stomach, I hurt. If I press on my temple right here, I hurt too. So what, what in the world is going on? So the doctor ordered the full body scan and the series of tests and x-rays and physicals. And, and finally, a week later, when the doctor got back all the results, he, he called the man on the phone and he said, I, I think I've found out the reason why every time you touch something, it hurts. And of course, the, the patient was anxious. He said, well, well, tell me, what in the world is wrong? The doctor said, well, from what I see here, your overall body is fine. It's just that your pointer finger is broken. 
I know that was a really bad one. <laughs> but the idea is here, the translation, right, is we live in a broken world, and everyone knows it, right? Everyone, no matter who you are or where you are. And Paul wanted his Roman audience to understand that too. He wanted them to understand what the gospel message was all about, but he also wanted them and you and me by extension to know why such a message was even necessary at all and to realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ was not God's plan B. It wasn't an afterthought. It was never a kind of an optional extra, but always an absolute necessity. Someone wrote, if our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. And thank God he did, right? He sent us a redeemer, a a rescuer, a helper. But now today in our modern context, folks would have you believe that that spiritual help can come in a variety of flavors. One New Age writer said this. She said, "God, to me, God is like the center or the hub of a wagon wheel, and each spoke leads to God. She said, for someone who thinks Buddha is God, that's very special to them. For someone that thinks Allah is God, that's very special to them. For someone that thinks that Jesus Christ is God, that's very special to them. And we must all see that we honor and respect one another's entry point to God. Pretty crazy, right? But if that were true, we would have to kind of rewrite Jesus' words in John 14, 6, and we'd have to change them to say, I am a possible way. I am a truth. I am a life. Anyone can come to God any way they want. But Jesus didn't say that, did he? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. But you know, that's a truth that sometimes instead of causing men and women to fall on their knees in repentance, instead, lead skeptics to raise the question, if faith in Christ is the the only way to God, what about those who never heard? What about those, those people that never hear a gospel message and never have an opportunity to respond to faith in Christ? I'm sure maybe you've thought about that a time or two, right? That ever occurred to you? In fact, it's actually the most frequently asked and most emotionally laid in question that a Christian can be asked, particularly when you're trying to share your faith. And the person that you're talking with will maybe interrupt the conversation and, and say, well, well, what happens to that poor, innocent native on the remote island that's never heard of Jesus? A person who, who lives and dies without hearing a single verse from the Bible or a word from God or from a missionary. What about them? How could your good God ever possibly send a person to hell who never heard about the only way to be saved? It just doesn't seem fair, does it? That's people's questions sometimes. Now, sometimes, sometimes that's a serious question from a person who's really seeking. But sometimes it's just a way to sidetrack the conversation and put the pressure back on the Christian and take the heat off of them. Right? To put it back on to us. But either way, the question needs an answer, especially because in the most recent tabulation published in April 24th of this year, it's been estimated that we live in a world of seven and a half billion people. 
Seven billion with a B, seven and a half billion people on this planet, a portion of which will never encounter a Christian or see a Bible or hear a sermon. So it's an important problem to consider. And I want to give you an equally important and serious answer from uh, a very respected Reformed theologian, Dr. R.C. Sproul, if you know him. He writes, when we ask what happens to the innocent person who has never heard, we're loading the question with significant assumptions. And when we ask it in this manner, the answer is easy and it's obvious. He says the innocent native who never heard of Christ is in excellent shape and we need not be anxious about his redemption because an innocent person doesn't need to know about Christ and has no need of redemption because God doesn't judge innocent people. The only trouble is you just have to find them. Because, brothers and sisters, the Bible knows nothing of an innocent person. And that thought really comes through in, in one of our psalms. It's one of the optional uh, lectionary readings for today, Psalm 139. And the psalmist writes, O Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel. And when I rest at home, you know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. Now, to me, that's almost a scary thought. To know that there is someone who knows you better than you know yourself. And I think we all know ourselves well enough to know that we don't really want anyone else to know us quite that well, do we? Because truth be told, we don't even live up to the standards that we set for ourselves. All right, we know what's right. We just don't always want to do it. And guess what? Neither does anybody else. Right, Dr. Sproul goes on to say, has the heathen or anyone really lived up to the light of God's truth in creation and in conscience? And he concludes by saying the answer quite obviously is no, they haven't. And so have justly earned the wrath of God. See, that's what Paul told us last week in chapter 1. Remember in Romans 1, he said, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, he has clearly seen his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. You see here in verse 20, Paul kind of takes his argument to the next step. He says, this plainly seen revelation of God in nature is available to everyone since the beginning of creation. That means Adam saw it. Cain saw it. Noah saw it. Jacob, Moses, David saw it, along with every other person who has ever lived since the beginning of time. And I don't want you to miss this point because it has massive implications for the question of whether the people of the world are innocent or guilty before God. Because since the Apostle Paul says everyone knows something about God, that means there's no one who has ever lived who has missed that revelation. So the truth is there for them to see. It's there plainly laid out, plain as day, so that no one can miss it. And that means it doesn't matter whether you're a, a headhunter in the South Pacific or an upscale yuppie in Chicago. No one can miss the truth about God's existence, and no one ever has. Because the Bible says God made the truth about him as plain as day. 
And you see, Paul tells us that the scriptures teach that that a man in any culture or any location or any time period intentionally suppresses the truth of God's righteousness. In fact, one author gave this illustration. He said, for instance, the headhunter hunts heads, but he resents his own head being hunted. The pickpocket picks pockets, but he doesn't want his own pocket picked. So that means each one of them suppress the truth of God's righteousness and that they recognize God's moral law when they're wrong, but they excuse their own moral behavior. And Paul explains in more detail as we go a little further into Romans chapter 2. He says, when the Gentiles sin, they'll be destroyed even though they never had God's written law. The Jews who have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law does not make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law, and they instinctively obey it even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either excuse them or or tell them they're doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge everyone's secret life. So Paul is basically arguing that it doesn't matter, as Ravi Zacharias said, what denomination or abomination you're a part of, because people are condemned not because they're uninformed, but because they have sinned against the sovereignty of Almighty God. And God's wrath is revealed not against innocence or ignorance, but against actual ungodliness and wickedness in the hearts of men and women everywhere. So the point that Paul is making is, the real question is not, why does God save or not save particular individuals, but rather, why in the world did he condescend to save any one of us at all? Any of us. And that's what makes grace so amazing. When we realize that for absolutely no reason within us. In, in fact, in spite of everything within us, God chose to save, as the, psalm, the hymn says, a wretch like me. Because anyone who is saved is saved not because they deserve it, not because he or she is innocent, but because God has decided to be merciful. And that mercy is revealed in the plan of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, a plan that God conceived and initiated before the world began. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, he said, even before God made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sin. You see, brothers and sisters, that's the good news. That's the message that, that God has called us to share, not because he needs the help of humanity to spread the gospel, but because he gives us the privilege to. Because he allows us to be the means of grace to a lost and dying world that is desperately in need of the genuine message of salvation which really should prompt us, instead of asking what God will or will not do with hypothetical people in hypothetical situations, we need to ask, instead of what happens to them, 
what happens to me if I never do anything to share the good news? Am I really as worried about the, the unreached as I pretend to be? What have I done lately to make sure that everyone hears about Jesus? Not only around the world, but sometimes in those even harder to reach places that are right around the corner or down the street or in our own families because the question of what happens to the person that never hears Christ, even though it's important, is one that has to be answered not only with words, but with actions. But you know what? All too often our fear of rejection or of other skepticism or of someone mocking us can cripple us from sharing Jesus Christ even with people that we know. And we're often more concerned about our own comfort or our own kind of people than we are about taking the risk and proclaiming Jesus to a new world. Or the flip side of that is we let ourselves be so wrapped up in God's hatred of sin that we forget how very much God loves sinners. And both of those are tragic mistakes. And I want to leave you today with the, the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man who's been called the Prince of Preachers, a man who had a true heart for evangelism and, and a guy who's estimated in his career to have preached over 10 million people. And when he preached to those who didn't know the Lord, when he spoke to unbelievers, he said, to be laughed at by you is no great hardship for me. I can delight in your scoffs and jeers, but to see you turn away from God's mercy, that's my sorrow. Spit on me, brothers, but oh, repent. Laugh at me, but oh, believe in my master. Make my body as the dirt in the street, but beloved, I beg you, do not damn your souls to hell. And then to us inside the church, to the believers, he says, Brothers and sisters, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they must perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. And brothers, if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled despite the teeth of our exertion. And let not one person go there unwarned and unprayed for. He said, oh yes, a man's salvation from sin is the work of God alone, but know this, the Holy Spirit will often move others by first moving you. And brothers and sisters, let us be so moved. Amen. Father God, we thank you that you were so willing to send your son into this world, your son who was, uh, who was mocked and rejected and, and spit on and yet bore all of those things, Father, so that you would lift us up out of the pit of our own making. And so, Lord, we ask that you would come today by your Holy Spirit and you would move us to share this good news of the gospel, Father, with everyone that we and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.